we are, our, our next gospel class is starting February 19th. If you are interested in learning about basic theology, that element's vision, what we believe, or you want to become a member here, uh, it is required to go through the gospel class. It is eight weeks long. And again, like I said, it teaches you some stuff. It helps you to let you know who we are as a church and what our focus is. We think it's very important because a lot of times people will go to a church and they'll do like a membership class that's like an hour, and then you have no idea what the church actually believes. And uh, six months in, you're like, you're a bunch of weirdos which we are, you will find out about that in the gospel class. And then you can be like, oh, I want to be a part of this, or I don't want any more weirdness in my life, and then you can, you know, whatever. Uh, And we have actually had some people leave Element after the gospel class because they hear our vision and what we think we should be doing, and they're like, okay, that's not for us. And that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. Uh, also, we are, we, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, and what we're trying to do is uh, gauge the amount of interest to have our next baptisms. We're trying to figure out if we want to do them right after Easter or a little bit after that. And so if you have not been baptized, you've been thinking about it, uh, sign up. We will do some baptism classes and things like that before we get to it. But if you're interested, we're trying to gauge, again, that interest. So if you would, if you want to, sign up and, and let us know. Why don't you guys stand on the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew eight twenty six and 27. It says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what sort of Savior you are, that the wind and the waves obey you. That the chaos that is in our own lives would be things that fall under your great jurisdiction and your authority. And we would trust you for the things that you have said and the things that you continue to do. That we live lives of great peace and great hope and great joy because they are found in you. Amen. Have a seat. It is February. Oh, this year is starting just to fly by. So we're doing this uh, 15-week study on the authority of Jesus, and you're probably thinking, you're a church. Shouldn't the authority of Jesus be a given? For a lot of people, the answer to that question is yes from our lips, but not always a yes from how we live our lives. And I just don't mean you, I mean me too. Uh, sometimes when Jesus says things like, love your neighbor, it's like, have you met some of my neighbors? I, I don't know if Jesus understands what that's supposed to look like, loving my neighbor. Yeah, uh, he'll say things like reconcile with other people as far as it is possible for you. But what about when someone has really hurt you and run you over, and how do you begin to do that? I don't always like living under the authority of Jesus because I'd rather live under my own. But when we live under our own authority, we mess things up because we are not good gods. So that's why we need to live under his authority. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. The series on authority is taking us through Matthew 8 and 9, which comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus preaches this most famous sermon, it says in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he is teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So then Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9 will go on to show 14 different ways that he has this authority. Just in case someone was doubting, do you have the right to say the things that you said? Of course I do. So we've seen Jesus' authority over sickness, over relationships, over calling disciples, and today we will see Jesus' authority over nature. Sounds like a biggie, I know, especially in California, got some rain, probably could use a whole lot more in the central coast, so that's a good thing, but it's even bigger than you can imagine in a Hebrew mindset. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some stuff I talked about on Christmas Eve in 2015, some stuff I talked about even a year before that, and bring it all together to help you understand what's actually going on in this passage, so we have a full 
full understanding of Jesus' authority. And I have in my notes, I put, okay, question mark. I don't know why I need to ask you, because I'm going to do it anyway. Whatever. So, Matthew eight twenty three. it's where we're starting. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. So, Jesus is a heavy sleeper, number one. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, for Jewish people, this is huge. What's going through their minds and what they're understanding, even more so than if we saw it, this is a really big deal. I mean, today we have, we have movies with superheroes and all this hype, so I don't know if we would be as impressed by this, but these disciples, this was mind-blowing. This would be like bacon-wrapped bacon. It's, it's amazing, mind-blowing. So I'm going to walk through this with you, and then hopefully we'll come out on the other side and have a better understanding of this. Psalm 77, verse 16 says, When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Now, there are lots of interesting verses like this in the Old Testament where God walks by the waters and they tremble near him. You see this all the time. The waters convulse around God. The waters fear God. In Genesis 1, God God pulls the water from the land. You see in the book of Joshua, God parts the water so they can walk across on dry land through the Jordan River. In the book of Exodus, God parts the Red Sea so his people walk across on dry land. In the Old Testament, it said God treads on the deep. He silences the waters. In Job 38, verses 8 through 11, God says to Job, Who shut the sea? Uh, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. So when God says to the ocean, That's as far as you go. That's all you get. Who, were you there when I did that, Job? No. Psalm 65, verse 6 and 7. Of God, it says, He's the one who by His strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Now, what is happening here in this context is all these ancient cultures around Israel, they believed that the earth was surrounded by water. Now, the Israelites didn't believe that because the scriptures teach that the earth is suspended in space. Job 26, verse 7, he stretched out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. But Israelites at this point, they didn't understand science or or what that meant. And so you have all these cultures around them, and they have this deep influence on Israel. And all these cultures saw in the waters around them this sinister force that was out to destroy them. Water had personality. It rages. It rebelled. And so it made a lot of fear in people. And people were afraid of all these ancient evils that the waters held and what they could do to them. In the ancient Mesopotamian area where Israel was, you have Egyptians and Sumerians and Babylonians, and they had all of these stories that surrounded all of this. All these stories involved these little fallible gods like Thor and Zeus and Loki and all those things like that. They believed in the supernatural, but not necessarily one god. They believed in a bunch of little gods who would run around and fight each other and fight with these strange, weird, mythical creatures that today we call chaos monsters. That's what we call them now. They viewed creation as a struggle between order and chaos. And they faced chaos every single day in their life with drought and starvation and shipwrecks and epidemics. You fast forward to... 2016, 2017, and you've got government mandates and executive orders and all kinds of crazy things. They believe chaos comes out of this supernatural struggle. 
And for these cultures, there is no connection between religion, the gods, and ethics, how you live your life. Ancient peoples would make everything into a god, and then they would worship that thing just to be safe so nothing would come to get them. You don't want to make anything mad, so I'll just worship everything. The sun gets a name, and the sun gets worshipped. The moon gets a name, and the moon gets worshipped. The trees get names, and the trees get worshipped. The earth has a name, and the earth gets worshipped. The stars, everything gets worshipped. In one creation story, creation happens after a saltwater goddess named Tiamat had given rise to 11 horrible mutants. These would be like X-Men under Magneto, not under Professor X. You guys don't know anything, but okay, whatever. It's like monster snakes and lion men and scorpion men and fish men. And eventually they're all subdued. But creation always happened in this way in these stories of the struggle between gods and these chaos monsters. And human beings in these stories were always afterthoughts. They're like cannon fodder. Very much like our secular worldviews today. The secular worldviews of humanity is you're an accident of evolution. You really have no purpose. That's kind of the same view, just a little bit different. Genesis 1 is written in part to address that worldview. Genesis 1 comes in and it challenges the core assumptions about the nature of God and the nature of human beings. In the ancient world, these stories were out there. And then you have this God who reveals himself into the chaos, into this mess with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What that means is everything that is. That sentence will eventually change the world. God's power comes out of that first sentence in this Hebrew word called bara. The word bara means to create. It is used right about 50 times in the Old Testament scriptures, and it is only ever used to describe God. Only God gets to bara. No human being gets to bara, only God. This distinguishes bara. It's used for God exclusively, and it has to do with who's in ultimate control. Who actually has all of the authority. That's what it comes down to. The reason people in the ancient world were so concerned about chaos is the universal human fear. I feel like things are out of control. And there's a good reason for that fear because things are out of control. (laughs) That's why... Well, at least your control, anyway. And that's always been a challenge to human pride. We want to figure it out and have control of our lives, and we are self-deceived, especially in our day. Ortberg once wrote this. He said, You cannot control your life, not through your intelligence, education, money, contacts, not through worrying. And if you wait until you have everything under control to be at peace, how long will you wait? You'll wait till you die, and you won't be too happy about that either. (laughs) So true. God, in the beginning, was strong enough that he created everything because he's sovereign. He is powerful. And that's why we live lives surrendered to his authority. We say, God, I am not in control of anything, but I'll live under your strength and under your authority. So Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created. Bara. And it doesn't use that word bara again until the 21st verse. And this is what it says in the 21st verse. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Now, why does it use bara there? Because the writer of Genesis is trying to help everybody to understand, make it clear to all the people in the ancient world that the greatest forces you know, the biggest fears you have in your life, the mysterious creatures in the water, God made them. And God can unmake them as well. There are no forces in this world that threaten who God is. The great sea creatures, he doesn't have to go out and battle them and pull out his sword and stab them and, oh my goodness, am I going to win? Am I going to lose? No, they're more like his pets. There is no force in this world that ultimately threatens God's good purpose. 
God made all the monsters that you would think bring all the chaos. God made Orca the killer whale and the hammerhead sharks and Jaws. God made all of those things, which means God also made your boss and God also made your spouse and you have nothing to be afraid of. Now, the reason that we're not supposed to be afraid is the most common promise in the Old Testament. 366 times, it says, do not be afraid because I am with you. So when Jesus comes, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which is God with us. See, when when God does this and he creates everything on the earth, he does it, one, for his glory, but also to make space for his people. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. Without form and void is not talking about the shape of things. It's language about those ancient stories about all this chaos. Readers would have recognized that. Without form and void. But God comes and he brings order so human beings can actually live and thrive and flourish and have a home. On day one, God says, let there be light. Day two, it's ultimately about making weather. Day three is dry land and vegetation. Day four comes along, and it's the sun and moon and the stars. And it says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. What's the greater light to govern the day called? The sun. Right, you went to elementary school. You know what it's called. It's called the sun. Why doesn't he just say the sun? The sun doesn't even get a name here. Because in the ancient world, everybody worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. So the writer of Genesis is saying, no, the sun isn't God. God made it. I'm not even going to name it because you're a bunch of weirdos who will run off with it and do kind of stupid stuff. So, no, God just made this big light. I'm going to call it the big light. And what's the thing at night? That's the little light. That's all I'm going to call it. That, he doesn't mention it because he doesn't want somebody worshipping the sun. He doesn't want somebody worshipping the moon. Don't worship creation. You worship the creator. You have day five, God fills up the sky with birds of the air, fish of the sea. Day six, he fills up the land with land animals and human beings. And the picture in this is that God is this powerful, joyful, generous designer. He's an engineer that brings order and function to the universe because he's good. He makes and he blesses. On the seventh day, God rests to show that he is in control. He sits down. He is in authority. What he does is we're being told that this the earth is like God's temple, and we are meant to be his image bearers. That's our vocation. That's the job that we get, to be image bearers of God, to be priests to the world. We are to now exercise dominion and stewardship over the world, and we do that with him. It is wonderful, and it's beautiful. But then Genesis 3 comes along, and chaos comes into the world because of what mankind did. We ran away from our calling. We ran away from God. We broke relationship with him. We thought that we could do our lives better than he calls us to do our lives. And so now there is pain and death and suffering and violence. And it's not because of some superstitious force out there. The chaos is here. It's here in the human heart. After all that God creates, after all that he reveals himself to be, mankind rebels. We even today do the exact same thing. We decide what things God says we will follow and what things we won't. We decide what is right for us. We break relationship with God and others. Every single day we do this. And now we all face these chaos monsters of regret and abuse and betrayal and loneliness and divorce and guilt. But the amazing thing is the king came. 
in Jesus. And Jesus constantly showing us his authority, that our faith should be in him alone. What does he say to the disciples? Matthew 8, 26. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. He controls the chaos. They are looking at Jesus, and they see him calm this storm, something only God can do. And they marvel at that. They believe, but Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. See, what we've got to understand is biblical faith is what's called a covenantal concept. It is based in a person. Biblical faith is like saying, I do when you get married. It is a pledge given and a pledge received. It's given to another person and back. It starts with God to us. And in marriage, it's us to another person. And we respond, we commit our loves and our lives to Jesus. No matter how big the storms are, no matter how much the water rage or the chaos feels at a given time. This year, my wife and I will be married 25 years. When I married her, I believed certain things about her. I believed that she was godly and honest and beautiful, but I didn't exercise my faith in those things until I actually said I do, until I actually did something with it. Biblical faith is not mere belief. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have a greater understanding of who God is than you do. They really do. Biblical faith becomes acting on the belief that we say that we have. Do we really trust him? Do we really live under his authority? I don't even think it's always being 100% certain because I don't know if we can be. Like when I married my wife, we weren't certain about everything we thought about each other. I turned out to be a lot nuttier than she ever thought I would be. I mean, yeah, we, we hoped we'd live happily ever after, and, and we didn't because marriage takes a lot of work. No? Okay. It's like, it's like I'm not saying amen. I'll get punched in the arm. Exactly. Okay? Exactly. You know, so, you know, but we didn't have the certainty, but we acted on our belief. We acted on our faith, and we loved, and we trusted each other. Faith is not always necessarily striving for certainty. You know, it's striving for faithfulness, because Jesus has first been faithful to us. It's not that God loves us when we're more faithful. It's that we become faithful because he has first given to us. We act in ways that he calls us to, even when sometimes we are uncertain, because we always trust his authority. Biblical faith isn't how much... You can bluster up about your faith or how well you can explain it backwards and forwards throughout the Bible. It's how willing we become to act on the things that we say we believe. I think it's why the New Testament, when it speaks of Jesus and people and faith, it constantly says things like, Jesus saw their faith. How did Jesus see their faith? By what they did. By how they actually acted, their action. Faith is how you act on your belief, which is a different concept than a lot of people experience. We don't need to wrestle with hard questions and issues and arguments. You may never have all the answers to every question in the world around you. You will never be able to talk with some people who just love to incessantly talk about things you don't even care about, but they just want to talk about them all day long. The one thing we should be focused on is Jesus, who has authority over our lives. If we are confident in him and who he is, our actions will begin to show it. Are we confident enough to live as a trustworthy bride to our great bridegroom? See, what you see is the disciples see Jesus do this. They are in awe of what he has done. They become afraid because of the power. They understand that Jesus controls, that he wields. And yet, in the end, they will run away and deny him. That's what they will do. One of the worst things we can do today is convince ourselves that if we have just the right beliefs, it doesn't matter how we live. 
80% of Americans today say they believe in Jesus. For 75% of that 80%, it makes no difference in how they live. Their lives are indistinguishable from those who say they have no faith at all. Again, this is why biblical faith is willing to act on what we trust to be true. From the story in Matthew 8, that would mean Jesus holds everything in his hands, especially those things that we think are too big and out of control, the scary things in the water. Ask yourself these questions. Do you really have faith? And if so, what does it look like? What does it look like? How does it manifest in your confidence in Jesus? Do you sacrifice in your life for the kingdom of God? How do you love your enemies? How do you love your neighbors? How has your life changed since following and trusting Jesus? In Matthew 8, 27, it says, The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus speaks into the storm and shows his creation is not bound by waters. It's not bound by waters and these uncontrollable forces. He controls the waters. He controls these things. His people have, his people have nothing to fear. If you went out to the ocean and you stood on the beach and you walked into the water and you said, Stop! Your feet are going to get wet. That's what's going to happen to you. God says, stop, and the waters get up, and they get out of his way. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus goes one step further. He will actually walk on the water. And what it shows is the disciples that the water is beneath him. And again, you look at the Old Testament. You constantly see how God treads on the waters. He walks on the waters. Job 9, verse 8 says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Habakkuk 3.15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I think that refers to literal and spiritual waters in the Hebrew mindset. Jesus, in Matthew 14, emulates God Almighty and shows you that the water is beneath him and he treads on the waters. He, when he does this, the disciples are afraid again. Seems to be their default mindset when it comes to Jesus. And he's got to tell them, be courageous, be courageous, while at the same time claiming the name of God for himself. God has shown in the Old Testament rescuing people from deep waters, which in Matthew 14 is something Jesus does for Peter as he starts to drown. Psalm 18, verse 16 says, He sent, which is the word reached, from on high. He took me and drew me out of many, which is the word for deep, waters. Peter, in Matthew 14, literally starts to drown. And Jesus pulls him out of the deep waters and he saves him. This could also refer to a person being overtaken in a spiritual battle. Psalm 144, verse 7, Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, and deliver me from the many waters. See, Jesus calming this storm in Matthew 8 right here in the narrative that it comes after the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a coincidence. It is showing you and telling you and the disciples and you and me that Jesus has authority over all the storms and all the chaos of our lives. It says, He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. That word rebuked is the same word that he will, that uses when Jesus casts demons out of people which leads to next week, you'll see Jesus cast some demons out of people, which in the Matthew narrative, you see it just moves right along. Matthew has a point in what he's doing. Now, the word rebuke in context, it means shut up. Now, I know you tell your kids, don't say shut up, but Jesus says it to demons, so that's okay. okay? He says it to the storm, so that, that's okay there. It means that Jesus comes into our lives with all the chaos, and he says, trust me. And when we trust him, he looks at the chaos, and he's like, you chaos, you need to shut it. That's what you need to do. Psalm 107, verses 28 to 30. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, and the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Doesn't that sound like another way of reading Matthew 8? The exact same thing. Who does all of this? Jesus. 
He is victorious over all things. Matthew, in Matthew 14, the disciples get it, and they fall down and worship Jesus. Every monotheistic Jew knew you worship God alone. They were confessing Jesus to be God in the flesh, and Jesus accepts the worship. It's amazing. At that moment, they knew who he was. They had no doubts. They had no doubts. But later, they did. Who was and is Jesus? Who was and is Jesus? He is God in the flesh who preserved the world by keeping the evil forces at bay. This is one of the most important revelations you will ever see in the scriptures. I think in all of human history. He is the incarnate God, the perfect revelation of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's the word substance. He he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In the past, they saw glimpses of God's glory, but it's always mediated through something, like a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a priest or something like that. But when Jesus comes, he's God in the flesh. There is nothing anymore that separates us from him. Jesus was and is God on display. When God's glory shines, Jesus is the shine. When God loves, Jesus is that love. When you see God face to face, you will see Jesus. He is the image of God, the truth of God, the word of God, and he is God revealed in human flesh. This is how it all comes together, acting on what we believe. Do we believe who Jesus revealed himself to be? That's the question. Do we trust who he was and is, what he said? Do we say we believe it enough to actually act on it? Because if you and your life act on it, you will know this to be true. The waters will rise. And you feel like chaos is going to break out because things want to attack you. It will team with horrible creatures to overtake you. And at those moments, do you understand that Jesus is the one who controls the chaos? Do you walk with him and honor him? Is your faith, faith such that you understand that Jesus has already redeemed you and those waters cannot touch you? They cannot touch you. It is imperative that we have a true picture of Jesus and not a false one. All the way back in the book of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, and they sinned because the serpent was able to convince them that God was not who he had shown himself to be. Because you cannot have a faith relationship with the God you do not trust. And I think this is why Jesus does this here. Right after the Sermon on the Mount, showing his authority, you can trust me. Everything that you fear is underneath me. I think when Jesus shows up, it's God's way of blowing apart all the false images of God that we have. Jesus is God in his essence, and he lives the life that we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. He dies in our place, and he restores to new life us, so we have a relationship with him and others, and we get to really be God's image bearers in this world again because of what Jesus has done. I mean, I I know I can't in half an hour get you guys to understand a Jewish mindset, Okay, I know I can't get that, but if you just get the faintest picture of that and what they saw when Jesus calmed that storm, hopefully for you, that brings you a lot of hope and a lot of joy because you see what God did. You see what God did in Jesus as he calms the storm. And you're like, my life, my life is nothing like a raging sea. And yet Jesus can calm that. He can come and calm my life as well. So we place ourselves in his hands and we trust him and live under his great authority because he is the one that holds everything in his hands. 
why you go to communion every single week. It's a reminder of what the God of this universe did to rescue and save and redeem his people. So you break a cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me to remove all the chaos that we had brought into our lives so that we can have a real and true relationship with God again and with one another again. This is what it reminds us of, that our God is good and powerful and there is nothing, especially the things that we have done in our lives, that can separate us from him. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. If you are going through something in your life and you feel like the chaos is ready to overwhelm you, they would love to pray with you about that. They would love to begin to walk with you through some of these things and hopefully in the end begin to understand that God is good, that he has created all things, and he created you. And whatever chaos is going to start happening in your life, that is underneath him as well. So you can trust him in it. And I'm not saying that God's going to remove all the trials and all the pain and all the stuff you might end up going through. But it's that God will walk with you and grow you through it. Because he is good and he is powerful. And he is the one who has all authority. So let's live in that authority. There's offering boxes on the sidewall on the back and we give because God gave so much to us. There's food in the back, grab something to eat. They meet some other people, take some of the sermon notes, ask some questions of one another, go a little bit deeper. What places do you find it really hard to trust God in the midst of the chaos of your life? What things in your life bring the most chaos? If you had to label one thing in your life as the water that surrounds it, what would it be? And kind of start talking about that. And then maybe get to the point where you understand that those things are all under Jesus' authority. Let's be a people who begin to trust him. And because we trust him, live a life of faith that shows that we really do trust him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would help us to see the greatness and the goodness of who you are. That when the waters rise and the seas rage metaphorically in our lives, that we would be those who still trust you. When we are in places of indecision or doubt or wondering what the next steps are supposed to be, that we would remember that we are under your authority and that we would trust you in all things. That we wouldn't always cling to our own wisdom or our own way of fixing something, but we would first look to you and let you lead us and guide us. And Father, even when we don't have that perfect answer of that thing that we're looking for, we would still simply walk forward in faith, trusting you, doing the simplicity of what you've called us to, not because doing it makes you love us more, but it begins to show that we trust you and your authority. So today and this week and this month and this year and the rest of our lives, teach us to live with great hope in who you are so that no matter what comes our way, we understand and realize we are in your hands. The uncreated one who has created everything. That you have borrowed us and called us home. Teach us to live in great faith in who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.